Welcome everyone to the first episode in the Nepal Coexisting with Giants series. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and world traveler. Let's go back to before COVID was a part of our lives. Picture the last time you purchased tickets to a far-off destination. Reminisce on the emotions that flooded you. First exhilaration and pure excitement. You probably even posted on Instagram or Twitter that you just booked your flights. And then a few days later, the second wave of emotion hits you. Slight nervousness, a little bit of anxiety preparing for visas, double-checking your passport is up-to-date and has enough pages to enter the country, and on and on. At this point, we usually turn to the internet to answer those other burning questions. Where is the best wildlife? What tourism companies follow conservation guidelines? What should I wear? What should I not wear? How do I ask where is the bathroom? Can you relate? When the internet doesn't provide the answers you're looking for, where do you turn? Your network. Who's been there and will be open to giving you the advice you're searching for? This was today's guest for me. In this episode, I'm chatting with Sam Helly, who is a PhD student and has been studying human-wildlife conflict in Nepal for multiple years. She and I originally connected during a call to learn more about social norms in Nepal, and after chatting with her for just a couple of minutes, I knew I needed to share her story with all of you. She sets the foundation for my understanding of conflict in the area and how amazingly dedicated the local communities are to protecting their wildlife, even when it causes mortality and hardship amongst their town and villages. I'm so grateful Sam and I chatted before my plane took off for Nepal, and I highly recommend listening to the full episode to really set you up for the rest of the series. Sam is a vibrant, lively person, and we had so much fun recording this for you all. It was a true happy hour chat with lots of drinks and open, honest conversation. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you're listening. If you're liking this travel series format, please let me know by messaging me on Instagram at Rewildology or emailing me at hello at Rewildology.com. And now on to my conversation with Sam. The color of that is so fun. So you said it's Empress Jen? Empress 1908, I think it is. Nice. <laughs> It was all over TikTok. That's what the kids were saying. So, <laughs> well, with that color, that's not surprising. I'm sure. Yeah. Everyone was like, look at this beautiful purple drink. So, is the gin that color, or is it like the, the gin mixer? is like a blue, and then once it it's like once it hits an acid, which it's got lime in here, then it like turns pinkish purple, which I'm very into. Nice. I mean, because what else is there to entertain us right now? I mean, we love a science experiment, especially <laughs> when it to a cocktail. <laughs> And so, yeah, so I get to watch this super fun drink and I get to drink it at the same time and enjoy it. <laughs> exactly. Love it. I've just gotten into gins. I'm very much like a tequila vodka gal. Mm. But then I was like, this is what this is one of my new quarantine hobbies. So this is <laughs> this is the consistent hobby I picked up over quarantine is trying new gins. That's a- <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure like what was said in my first episode is pretty sure we're all borderline alcoholics now. Yeah. I mean, the amount I mean, of we bourbon. Already, yeah, we already were in exactly. this field already. Ex- yes, exactly. And 
Yes. <laughs> Which is something that people don't talk about, like wildlife. And this is a bad thing too, right? Because there are people that don't drink and it's very much part of like the social circle um, is there is a drinking culture, but there's a drinking culture in this field. <laughs> yes. Thank you for validating that because that's what I say. When I started this whole thing, I was like, no one talks about this. Most days I want to have a glass of wine or bourbon at the end of the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so thank you for validating what I've been saying now ever since yeah. I launched this. <laughs> like, hey, we actually all drink pretty heavily. And Wait, that we're like dynamic individuals who don't exist in like a trope. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wild. Got to get through it somehow. So yeah. So cheers to that, my darling. Cheers. Mm. With your, <laughs> exactly. Cheers. Oh my gosh. You're so much fun. I knew this was going to be a blast. So, but let, let's go back in time. I would love to hear how all of this, we're, we'll get up to like how amazing you are right now and all the cool shit you're doing, but take me back. Like who were, who was Sam as a little girl? What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? All of those, all of those beginning things. Oh, we're starting deep. Oh, we're going back. <laughs> we are going back, Sam. We're going back. Cool. Well, so I was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, like right in the center of the city. I am one of four sisters. Uh, -uh. Me yeah. too. Oh, I love that. What number are you? I'm two. I'm three. Okay. Oh my God, stop it. I okay, was closest awesome. to number three when we were growing up. So. <gasps> okay. Okay. So I'm super close to all of my sisters, but me and my number two, we are like tight. We yeah, are you share so the middle. tight. Exactly. We're in the middle. Yep. We're super tight. She hated me growing up though. Like she like <laughs> wished that I would just die, but that's okay. Cause she was the princess and then I came along and you know, all that stuff. But Love it's okay. Cause now, <laughs> now we're really, really, really close, but yes, keep going. So lots of strong feminine energy running through the household, but I like, yeah, I grew up in the middle of the city on a very busy street across the street from like a city hospital. And I really didn't like my nature was my backyard. And I remember like my earliest memories in nature were being in like my backyard and like we had a huge lilac bush or just like lifting rocks. We had like this four foot tall, like retainer wall. And because on top of it was like people's garages and we would like go back there and it was like dark and kind of like, there were a couple trees in there. So we would like play make believe back there, but like that was our outdoor time. And yeah, I lived, we lived in like a little apartment and I shared a room until I was in my like second year of college. And I wow, moved, like, really? Yeah, I didn't have my own room. And I mean, I think that says a lot about somebody like, I, and how it like relays into my personality now. I'm like very, like, I like to connect with people and I'm like, nothing's off limits. There's no <laughs> privacy. Boundaries, what are you talking about? Um, and in the sense of like, people are like, you share quite a bit. And I'm like, well, you're going to find out eventually. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know what else. I mean, a pretty chaotic childhood, I would say. Uh, so just because of having all the sisters or why was it chaotic? No. Um, so, I mean, I guess I, I can totally talk about this. It's not something that I like 
hide. It is part of who I am and actually something that makes me very good at my job today. So I, my biological father struggles with addiction. And so my parents split when I was a very young age and that was a big driver in that. We had all the chaos of that going on. And I want to say like, I have great empathy for people that are going through that because I know what it does to the people that you physically care about and what it does to families as well. So eight years old, became a latchkey kid. My mom went to work and she was a flight attendant, became a flight attendant with Midwest Airlines. And so she was gone. So it was like all of us fending for ourselves. And, but it, it shaped me to be very independent. It shaped me to be very inquisitive. And it also shaped me to dig deeper into people because I know what I've gone through and I know how it affects everybody around you. And there's always something else going on. So I'm always like searching for that deeper connection, which makes me, makes my connections with people. Like if there's anything about my reputation, nobody can say they don't have fun working with me or that they don't <laughs> like me. Like <laughs> that's, good. that's a good reputation to have. Uh, because everything is personal to me, whether we are doing a scientific project, if I'm working with you, we have a personal relationship. I've buried levels, of course, but like, I think that's why uh, I have the relationships that I do is because I exist in dynamic ways and I'm going to be myself and this is part of who I am. So yeah, that was like, so chaotic childhood and like, taking care of myself and finding solace in those like quiet moments outside. But I don't know, like searching around and finding my purpose. I didn't always want to be a wildlife biologist. Definitely not. Like if I was going to look at eight-year-old Sam and be like, what do you want to be? I wanted to be a firefighter at one point. I wanted to be a plastic surgeon at one point. Oh I was going to go to, really? I was going to go to beauty. Yeah. I was going to go to beauty school too. So <laughs> That's awesome. Those couldn't be further away from each other. That is so fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So then where do you pin your love for wildlife? Where did that come from? I always loved animals. And I think a lot of people do. And we had, I should also say what also made our house very chaotic is that we always had tons of pets and I was one of those kids that would bring animals home, even though my mom said no, <laughs> but then my mom loves animals. So like, for instance, I wanted a gerbil. My mom said, absolutely not. We are not doing rodents in this house. I bring it home and hide it in the basement storage room, go to a friend's house for the weekend. <laughs> and my sister snitch on me. And my mom is like, I told you not to do this, but he's kind of cute and he looks lonely. <laughs> he looks lonely. Maybe we should get him a friend. <laughs> Stop it. So not only did you get away with it, but you yeah. ended up getting two. <laughs> ended up getting more. So there was like at one time in our house, and this is like a little three bedroom, like upper duplex, sharing a room with two of my sisters. And then my mom has her room and my older sister has hers. We had two dogs at one point, a fish tank, three rabbits, four gerbils. Oh my God. <laughs> but I, and the way that I see that is like animals are unconditionally loving. And in a chaotic childhood, I was like, I was drawn to that because it was like, I was getting and give, be able to give this like unconditional love. So I don't, I don't mean that to sound dark and I'm sorry to people that are triggered by me smiling about that, but like, that's how I'm almost 30. That's how I rationalize all of that now. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you've worked through it. I mean, you've had yeah. plenty of time to reflect and if you can't make, you know, your mess into a message, then yes. what's the point, you know? Yeah. 
that's definitely what it was. So I also wanted to be a veterinarian. And when I initially went to college, because my mom was like, you need to go to college, I was pre-vet track. And then decided after going to like a pre-vet, being on that track for like a year, I was like, no, this is not what I want to do. But I ended up working as a vet tech in between. All these things are going to come up along this journey. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a straight line. That's never. like the message. It's never a straight line. Never. Yeah, because I saw, I think on the bio that I read of yours, that you're a first generation college graduate, right? I am. Yeah. How has that been for you? What was that like and everything? It was pretty wild. I definitely didn't like, I remember my mom and my stepdad sitting me down at a bench because I wanted to go to beauty school. And I was like, I'm just going to go cut hair. Like I get along with people. It's something I like doing. And my mom, I like, I don't think I'm smart enough to go to college. And my mom sat me down at a bench. She's like, you need to go to school. Like you need to go to college. Of course you're smart enough. Like <laughs> that is something that she always regretted. And so I went to University of Minnesota Duluth my first year as pre-vet and decided that wasn't for me. And then my second year, I studied abroad for a year in England just because I wanted to fuck around and be a 19-year-old in the UK. That's sick. I wish I would have <laughs> had an experience like that. That's the God honest truth. And it was at that time that program cost the same amount of money as it was going to be for me to be in the US. So I'm like, why well, the fuck not? Yeah. <laughs> when else like, are you going to go twist that? my arm? And <laughs> My mom's mom is from Wales. So she was born and raised and she's an immigrant. So I was like, I'm going to the UK. <laughs> Did that, came back to and transferred to University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, because I'm a city girl at heart. And being at Minnesota Duluth was like, it was too small. I mean, I love Duluth, but I was like, I'm going to focus. And I'm like, no, I'm just bored. And this isn't me. <laughs> So I went to Twin Cities. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I remember like speaking to the transfer specialist and being like, well, I like animals. And they're like, why don't you join fisheries and wildlife? And I'm like, what the fuck is that? What is that fish? What I like fishing. <laughs> what is <laughs> And I remember entering like the, my bachelor's I loved, like absolutely loved my experience. I loved the program. I had great professors and I had like a great cohort that I graduated with that I made like great friends. But I remember the moment, like my ecological moment was at like 20 years old. So it was sitting in a like freshman biology course, like bio or ecology 101 and listening to this professor talk about trophic cascades. So how everything is connected and I just had this moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like all connected and it's beautiful and it's perfect. And I'm part of it and I need to know more. And that was the truth of like how I got into conservation. It was like, I liked animals. Somebody was like, why don't you try this out? And then learning about how I was part of it really changed me because it was something that I never really saw myself as part of, truthfully. Like there was and nature and then there was you. Yes. But like combined. And still, I think the statistics are like we have the boundary waters and protected area in northern Minnesota. And I think the average visitor is a 30 year old white man with a master's degree. Like and that was my perception of like the outdoors and nature. Like there, my perception was the trope. Like you are an outdoors family, which wasn't my family. You were like wealthy that was a predominant factor because that is another thing is that predominantly wealthy people in this country visit national parks and protected areas and that that wasn't for me. 
Like that was for somebody else. And I just didn't see that as, so once somebody explained it to me as me being like, oh, I'm part of this. I was like, oh, I'm part of this. That's beautiful. So then, so, so then what happened next? So after you had this, this realization moment of, wow, I'm, I'm a part of this. Hmm. What in you made you want to pursue that further? Cause you could have been like, Oh, that's cool. I'm a part of this, but I still want to go to beauty school. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> there, there was something about that moment that must've been so profound that it, it puts you on the track you're on. So what, what was that like? What was that? Yeah. So something about me is I put 110% into everything. That's like the worker in me. I've mm -hmm. had a job since I was like 13 years old. So I signed up for every field course I could take. I went on like every spring break course I could. Like I constantly filled my time with trying to learn about this space that I had no idea about. And I was like, definitely the odd person out in some cases. So whereas like some of my classmates would be showing up like fully decked and geared out, like they've been doing this since they were two. I like showed up to Yellowstone in rain boots. That's awesome. That was, that was what I did. And that was <laughs> me. Awesome earnest in wanting to participate, but I don't like, I wanted to participate and I encourage everybody like, go do it your way. It is for you. You are innately part of it. That's the other part of it. So did that. And then I met my master's advisor, Dr. JL David Smith, who is a notorious tiger biologist. He is the person who we have our primary literature and understanding about breeding tigers. So in captivity or in the wild? In the wild. So he did mm. his PhD. Oh, wow. He did his PhD in Nepal with the organization that I work with now, which is the National Trust for Nature Conservation. So back in the 80s. So a lot of what we know, like if you're reading a tiger paper, you're seeing all those old papers. And Dave will laugh because Dave's older. It comes from him. And he was very much a field-oriented instructor. So Dave like is very much somebody who's like, you know, reading books is great, but you know the worth and the, the greatness that a scientist can be when you see them in the field. And he's very a practical, like a very practical person, very old school. I so respect that. And that's how I, like, I still mentor in that way where I'm like, I will sit here and admit, I'm not like the smartest person on the planet. I'm intelligent. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Girl, please. Don't ah. get it twisted. <laughs> But I'm not like the greatest quantitative ecologist, but I'm scrappy and have common sense, which I, not every scientist has. I'm just <laughs> You can drink on that one. Yep. I'm just saying I know how to handle a situ I know how to handle situations and handle myself in the field. And I get along with people, which apparently is a commodity in, our <laughs> in the science field. Yes. Yep. Apparently. Yep. Yep. People's so skills I, and science knowledge don't necessarily go together. So it's, it's amazing when they do. <laughs> yeah. And then Dave at that time was teaching a study abroad course in Nepal. Like he had done one year and I had like had time to speak to him when he was teaching. What was it? Oh, immobilization. So I was getting certified to tranquilize animals and he was teaching that. So he, uh, he taught basically all the field courses and he was back from Nepal. And he's like, you need to go to Nepal next year. And I'm like, but I'm supposed to graduate in the fall. And he's like, go to Nepal. <laughs> and it changed my life. He saw something in me. And this is what I'm like, the great, like the greatest gift that he gave to me as a mentor was that he saw something in me that other people did not. I think of the field in academia, 
in particularly because uh, like wasn't the greatest quantitative student excelled in ever like I'm a excel in writing and all those other things. And, but he's just like, I know how this woman could work in the field. I know how she connects with people. And so when I went to, I did extend my undergraduate to go to Nepal and I spent five months there. And during that time, I was able to actually experience what this field was going to be like. So we were able to do like independent research projects. So we were living at uh, National Trust for Nature Conservation's Biological Conservation Center in Chitwan. So this is the south of Nepal, right next to Chitwan National Park, where I've done a lot of my work now. But this was in 2014, and we were able to do independent research projects at the end of that. And I was just interested in human-wildlife conflict in general, interested in human dynamics of that. Because once again, I have this background of being like, oh, we're part of it. People are part of it. Very cognizant of that and not seeing it. It was growing, definitely growing in the literature, but not seeing that connection in that specific area. So NTNC then said like, well, why don't you go sit down and talk with some victims of people's families or people who have been impacted by human tiger conflict? So they sent me down to south of Chitwan National Park in this area called Madi Valley. Beautiful, completely surrounded by thick, gorgeous forest. So you can see why it's just this hot spot for not just tiger conflict, but human-wildlife conflict in general. If you're an animal trying to move across, you're moving across this island of inhabitants. And the we were doing some like, we were just going to this place in general because it was a hot spot. And the first house on the first day that we sat at, I remember this moment where was there with a translator and assistant and asking the question, do you know anyone who has been killed or attacked by a tiger? And this person said in Nepali, their son. And I had very rudimentary Nepali skills at that time, but those two words hitting my ear, I didn't need a translator for. And that's where it hit, like that's where it hit because you can read those on a paper and there's tons of papers out there that talk about this, but to sit there with somebody and then for them to tell their story, that became it. Like I'm getting goosebumps again. I, it, I'm, I'm completely covered in goosebumps right now. Like, so I'm, that mm. moment was another pivotal um, moment for me and that there was this dimension that wasn't really being talked about and that these were real people. And what do we do? Like, I only saw it from this. So I had all this biological training to like, take me away from the human facet. Like it separated me from that. And then that moment was like, holy shit. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Like, I don't know anything. And I won't know anything until I understand this social, like the, these more social issues and these real world issues. So that's when I decided to do a master's. <laughs> and so then what did um, you end up studying? Like, what was your like master's thesis that you ended up going down? So it took me three years to get funding. I never want to diminish that. Like it isn't just like I hopped into it. Funding is a big part of it. And so it took me three years to get funding. I was a vet tech between that time and did a couple other odd jobs in between. And then finally, some like funding came through from my co-advisor, Kristen Nelson, who's also at the University of Minnesota, and she is a sociologist. So they, Dave and Kristen 
co-advised me. So my master's was completely diving into social science and getting trained in that and also understanding the very real thing that I am a white woman working in Nepal and what that means and the possible harm that I could be inflicting just my presence there and the colonial implications of like writing about outside of your context and things like that. So I, again, being a very like emotional, wanting to connect, I would say very empathetic person. I was like taking all of that into heart and basically having like a breakdown throughout my entire master. Oh my gosh. Can only imagine. <laughs> so um, I did my project, my master's thesis, and I'm still editing the manuscript, of course, understanding how social constructs such as gender play a role in risk for getting attacked by a tiger in hotspots. Specifically, I looked at gender. So how does and what that local level knowledge is for men and women who go into the forest every day and deal with this risk every day? What do they already know? Like what is, what local level knowledge is already there and what are the facilitators and barriers to them actually practicing those defense mechanisms and understanding that men and women are going into the forest for very different things and that our natural resources are being shaped by effectively by gender, by this social construct and that human human tiger conflict risk is being shaped by that as well. So like risk for a woman being attacked by a tiger is the highest because they primarily are collecting grass in that area. And the greatest chance you have of getting attacked by a tiger is a place where deer are going to be and where deer are going to be in the grasslands. <laughs> um, and men are at the greatest risk deeper in the forest because they're going to collect wood and they're typically going alone, which puts you at a higher risk for being attacked as well. And every single person in that area, well, I would say between what was the data, like 2009 to 2015, 16 was a low caste person or an indigenous person that is being killed. So there's all these implications that are going into that to be able to understand how we can mitigate this issue from a social perspective. You can't just look at this from a biological perspective. Wow. I'm everything you're saying is the whole reason why I took the people route as well. Like everything (laughs) because if people aren't saved, if people aren't protected, and if people aren't aware of what's going on, then the wildlife research part of it doesn't matter because there's no reason to save them at the end. And that's what I keep stressing pretty much on every single episode that I've done. I was super ignorant. I was so mm. ignorant because I study big cats. I love big cats. How you mm. and I are connecting over tigers. I mean, it, the love is deep. But who am I to say what it's like to live with a tiger? Mm-hmm. I've never had anybody in my family taken. I've yeah. never had any kind, any moment where any of my family members or the people that I care the most have been endangered because of wildlife. Mm. And so who the hell am I to judge somebody for wanting to kill those species that I adore so much? Mm. Like, who the hell am I? I might feel way differently if my son or my child was killed by the animal that I love so much. So, yeah. And truthfully, People, so Nepal has community forestry in which people are managing forested spaces for themselves. So truthfully, people that came about 
was really in practice in the 90s, like really started shooting off. And that is the reason we have so many tigers in Nepal today. Community forestry and people managing those resources for themselves so well increased tiger habitat. So like conservation-based, like so community-based conservation, like at its best. At its best. Nepal is mm. hands down the blueprint for community conservation. Wow, period. I didn't know that. Like, so... Uh, and that is what is inspiring to me because obviously we're coming from a very different context here in America where it's very like domination and control over. And this is very much a, a cognizance and awareness of that symbiotic relationship. And these are people that are relying on natural resources, not to say we don't, we just don't, we just do it in a different context, relying on natural resources as much as tigers are. And they're fully aware of like a lot of the benefits of having a good forest. So the greatest conservationists on earth. And I will continue to fight for their rights to do their work because they do it best. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. So you found this like higher instance, especially with different gender roles and what they mm. might, their, their danger levels of going into the forest. So what is the next step beyond that? What are ways to mitigate it? Or is that still being worked on? Or what's the next steps to keep these tigers alive and humans that live with them? Yeah, so that's a very good point because this issue also impacts tigers as well. When a tiger gets involved in a conflict and specifically when they kill people, the outcome can often be that they are removed and held or put in a zoo. And the what who was I'm trying to forget. I, now I'm going to forget who did this study of compiled this data, but like in like a 7-year period 16 tigers were taken from the buffer zone. This is just Chitwan National Park for being involved in a conflict, for being involved in multiple conflicts. And most of those were killing people. And 12 of them died, poisoned, something like that. Two of them were, or three of them were released back into the forest. We have no idea what happened to them. And then one of them, we know exactly where they are because they're sitting in the Kathmandu Zoo. So the outcomes for tigers are not good in that situation. And we're talking about a country that has 235 tigers at this point and removing 15 from that ecosystem. That's a lot. But the, what I asked a very simple question is what do people already know? Because there are a lot of education programs and mitigation programs that are like, well, we've got to go in and do trainings, but no one ever asks about that local level of knowledge. And this is also part of like colonialistic science practices of like, oh, they're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. These are people who for generations have been living on this landscape and cope with this issue every day. We should probably ask what they know. That makes that sense. That would just make sense. <laughs> and no one's writing about that, right? So, so uh, I had a very basic question of like, what do people already know? What are they practicing? And then what inhibits them from doing that? And for men, the biggest thing was going alone in the forest because their social networks aren't as, they aren't as highly reliant in this area. They aren't as highly reliant on those social networks because men, it's a patriarchal society and they're like, I can just go and do what I want. Whereas women typically in social systems where their mobility is limited, social mobility, they will work together. And don't you know that women communicate better? They carry out things better when they work together. <laughs> I didn't know that. So women don't have a problem finding a group to go to in the forest. Men do. It's more difficult for them, especially low caste men. And women, 
Um, one of the biggest things was a wearing the color red and red's a very auspicious color, but it also, we know from the research that red is an attractant or for whatever reason sets off wild animals. So, and from speaking with the wildlife technicians who have responded to these attacks, almost everyone's wearing red when they're dead. Wow. Really? That's so fascinating. And it's an auspicious color. Like it's a very sacred color. Like I get clocked all the time in Nepal. They're like, where's your red? What are you wearing? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) So it's like, they have all these things to do. They're managing kids at home. They're managing rearing the livestock. They're planting, they're um, gathering grass. And the, the biggest thing that they said was like, I, it's not something I think about, but don't you know, that's like, because I've got all these other things going on, it just doesn't come to mind to change my clothes, but that is something that's going to protect you at the end of the day. And he would have thought, and so like, so when those things are discovered, um, mm. then is that research shared among the community or like, what's the next steps when things like that are, are discovered? And again, like, I respect you and everything you just said so much from the fact yeah. that you, that you are looking at the local people as people like, thank mm. you. I don't hear that enough when I talk to researchers, like, mm. Thank you. But anyways, my question. (laughs) So, so when those things are discovered, what, what happens next? So then it's about having like, so now I feel like we're at a point where it's like, you know what the knowledge is here. So then you could probably do education programs because then now it's looking at how do we disperse, like widely disperse this information, asking questions like, who did you learn that from? Probably from a family member. But how does that get spread across more? So like that local level knowledge, because even having education programs is difficult because you're only going to get a small subset. So you really want people that have a wide social net to be able to spread that information. And I want to be clear that tiger attacks are still very rare in the grand scheme of things. The animal that you are most likely to be attacked by in these regions is an elephant or a rhino. But tigers being very, like it's a very triggering, devastating event because the animals that you are most likely to die from if you get attacked by them are an elephant and a tiger. Like there's, you have a very small chance of getting out of that incident alive. So there's fear that's behind that as well. So being able to reduce fear, I I don't know. I do think that education is critical, like education about the benefits that these animals are bringing will help facilitate better the like practical knowledge, which is already there. Again, I want to say that that knowledge is already there, but being able to facilitate them sharing that knowledge amongst each other and empowering people to, to know that like you have that knowledge because often I'll be like, what are well, people asking me? Like, like I'm some sort of authority, which I guess as a scientist, I am, but then being like, well, what do we do? And I'm like you and doing this research and being like, you have this here. Like you have this knowledge base here. I'm just collecting it all <laughs> and mirroring it back. So for these areas or your study area, is there any connection like with ecotourism? Is there like any way they're getting benefits from tigers being around them? Or is it and their situation, is it mostly just death, <laughs> potential so death? In this specific area, so in Monty Valley, which I also want to say is beautiful, their ecotourism is really slow right now. It's a very isolated place. So you actually have to go through the national park to get to it. So you have to go through the national park. And then again, it's this locked island. National park opens at 6 a.m. It closes at 6 p.m. So it's a very isolated area. It takes a little while to get there. So like 
if tourists are, they're like, we have three days in Chitwan, the likelihood that they're going to go to Madi, probably like they could, they could do an overnight, but it still takes a lot of time to get there. I will say, if you want to see wildlife in Nepal, go to the more remote places, like go to the off the beaten track because you're more likely to see them. I've seen two tigers in that area, (laughs) which is a rarity. It is an absolute blessing, but ecotourism is still not a huge thing in that area. It's sprinkling slowly. Mm. So as you're studying this, what are some of the solutions that you're seeing? Is it developing ecotourism more? Is there so close to Chitwan? What's next to help really um, mitigate this? So solution is a big word. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. That's a very loaded, weighted word. Yes. (laughs) Um, But my feeling has always been that people should be in charge of their own destiny. And what is tough is that they're living in the buffer zone of a national park. And there is heavy jurisdiction around the national park itself. And there's also heavy jurisdiction around buffer zone community forests. So they have a lot more restrictions than a community forest that is outside the protected area. My dream and what I think is optimal is that local people are monitoring wildlife for like monitoring their own wildlife, whether it is tracking animals themselves, like having some ownership. So what is, what if I have seen as a big barrier is this lack of ownership. Like when an, when an animal, it's like that age old, like kid problem. Like when an animal, when I, when your kid's bad, it's, it's your uh, spouse's problem. Like this is your kid. So when you have a problem animal, this is the government's animal that is causing a problem. There is a lot of pride around wildlife. There's religious value around wildlife. It is a great like Nepal is a great place for conservation. Like they do not euthanize animals in the way that like we see over here. Like if a bear attacks a person, euthanized. We they have elephants immediately. that have, immediately. They have elephants that have killed multiple people and they won't euthanize it because elephants are the living Ganesh. They are the living embodiment of a God. You don't kill God. And there is a respect for wildlife. Again, there's such potential in local people as being conservationists. So that leads me to the project that I'm in now where we are working outside of the protected area and outside the buffer zone in camera trapping, which you're taking my camera traps. (laughs) We train local people to monitor wildlife in areas that we see tigers are moving in. So to be able to take ownership and also be part of this process in a way that they've probably been locked out of. Mm. Breaking beautiful. I'm even way more excited now. I girl, I don't. You got a big job. You got a big job. You're taking over. Like you're you're changing. You're taking over a gift. Oh my god, that just makes me so. Brooke is taking over all my camera traps. We're taking over a lot too. It's not like a little tiny amount. So so I would just just out of my my own curiosity. So. Once we get all this gear there, because now that I'm starting to get more, what's the word I'm looking for? Just more understanding of why these Mm. particular things are being brought. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, when Dave told me, he's like, oh, you're just, you're going to bring, so you're bringing 25 camera traps and you're going to bring some like six like checking collars and then you're going to bring a camera for this person. But now I'm I'm getting context for for what these are for. (laughs) Which is great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Which, I mean, I was excited to bring this stuff anyways, because it's all for research. So, so 
once the camera traps are up, mm. what is the next step? Is it training the local people on how to monitor them? So what's next with these camera traps? Yeah, so it is going to be, there's going to be trainings hopefully this fall if I'm out there with our another partner, which is Community Conservation Inc. And that's what they do is like, empowering communities in conservation work. And often communities are interested and want to do the work. Community forests have money to do conservation work. I mean, it's innately conservation work is what community forest is, like community forestry is, but they're lacking the technical capacity. So being able to my vision of what we're going to be doing is bringing in members of community-based anti-poaching units in Chitwan and Bardia. So you have people that look like you, also doing the trainings because it's fine if I go over there and do the technical trainings. But again, I'm like a five, nine white woman. How does someone, especially a Nepali woman from rural Nepal, see themselves monitoring a camera trap or setting up a camera trap from someone like me? So being able to bring resources and funding to facilitate these technical trainings and they will be protecting and changing batteries out of our camera traps and we will see what's there. So from the 2018 like countrywide tiger survey, there are signs that there are tigers in these forests that they haven't been in a long time. That's exciting. Chit- yeah, between Chitwan and Bardia National Parks. So two of the largest and very important tiger populations in Nepal. So if we have tigers moving between them, I mean, that's very exciting because you also have gen- genetic crossover and stuff. But yeah, this pro- and being outside of the jurisdiction of a national park, this is really like community's jurisdiction. It's in their hands. So it is fully working with communities as a partner, as opposed to like, well, Department of National Parks and Wildlife still has a ton of power here. They don't. I mean, they do because it's an endangered species, but as far as holding out the project, they like communities could kick us out. <laughs> so... Yeah. And that goes to show how great of an impact that you're making and and how, you know, the the local people are accepting you and this research that you're doing. I mean, that should feel really good inside. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the big, I would say like the big part of it is my partners, which are the National Trust for Nature Conservation and Nepal Tiger Trust. They have a good reputation for working with people and carrying out these projects. And they also have their own field technicians who are able to go out and do the work with me and with us. And yeah, I've learned a lot from NTNC's field technicians, like changed my life. So (laughs) that's awesome. So I I know that you're currently pursuing your PhD, Mm -hmm. correct? So where does all of this fall into that? (laughs) So this Mm -hmm. new project is all part of that. And uh, when we were talking about this, after my master's. So between my master's and my PhD, so last year, the crazy year, (laughs) 2019, 2020, I was in Nepal on what's called like a Fulbright fellowship. So paid by the U S government to go do research for a year. And so while I was doing research out there, all these partners and colleagues that I've been working with since 2014 are like, you know, the things that you want to do kind of need a PhD. And I'm Mm. like, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Because honestly, I'm not, this is going to kick me in the ass someday, but here we are, two shops deep in gym. I know my glass of wine is gone. (laughs) And I'm not like, academia isn't sunshine and rainbows. That's like, no, that's no secret. I'm not a huge fan of it because I like to be, you're not the only one that's told me that. Yes. I like applied 
conservation. And while there are many academics that are like, I do applied conservation, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I will walk away from you that statement. <laughs> Someone's going to be mad, but whatever. <laughs> hey, you didn't, you didn't mention any names. I don't know who you're talking about, but I can definitely agree. So I'm going to let you know that some people are going to feel attacked. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but it's all good. So, but that was also like something where I was like, how am I going to, I realized also my, my worth and everything that I had learned and a skill set. I speak Nepali, which is also another skill set that comes in handy. And I'm like, am I really just going to walk away from all that? And then there's that conversation of like, well, I can change it from the inside. And wanting to make change, I knew that I needed to do a PhD. So the PhD project is everything we just talked about with where we are looking at tigers outside the protected area, very low hanging academic fruit, like just what's there. And having this opportunity to have communities monitor for themselves and look at which genetic populations these tigers are coming from and how they're interacting with the landscape with a highly, with a heavily human populated landscape and navigating through that. So now this area between these two protected areas, which has been considered a bottleneck or like a dead zone for tigers to move through. Well, it looks like there's tigers there. So and I'm probably going to say, like, I'm just going to call it right here. My hypothesis is that community forestry has facilitated that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just got goosebumps just thinking about it. I, like, I mean, I just let lo- <laughs> when local people lead, the world changes. And it sounds like what the role that you've you've assumed, which I respect so highly, is you're just recording what is already working, what they're doing, how this is a success story mm. and and maybe what can be applied elsewhere, you know, and then also us bringing this gear just to help facilitate what they're already mm. doing. Yeah. In a like higher technological way. Yeah. And just empowering people to do what they're already good at and saying like, and have being able to in the academic sense and the policy sense here is proof that when you give local people power, they can do it. Because just like you said, like who is going to know this area, the ecosystem? I mean, all of the workings of the area than the people that live there. Yeah. I mean, that's like the greatest. That's one of the greatest resources of knowledge that I have. Like all right. of the degrees combined, I learn the most on the ground and with my colleagues. So I bring resources and a skill set but it is bringing those resources to let these dreams, these like conservation dreams come to life. Mm. And I am so grateful for Kitty Adams Conservation Fund for providing these cameras, which is just going to be like, I am so excited. How did you get not, hooked up with Dave? Because he does so much work in Nepal. So, mm. and I have, I've been, wor- I've been over there almost every year since 2014 <laughs> doing various <laughs> projects. So running into, um, tax just like you. And they're like, who is this? Who is this woman? And I'm like, and then finally getting to meet Dave face to face. Did you meet in Nepal or did you meet in the US? We met face to face in the US because I went to Denver for some random, like just for fun. And then he was like, come pet a rhino. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm always down for that. <laughs> but I had met a couple of the technicians that he had wanted to go over and just clicked. And like, I'm always, I like something I love is giving people advice. Like the conversation we had, like be prepared for these things, be excited for these things. Nepal is great. Like, I love it. 
but being able to give advice as somebody who has been over there as a white person from the U.S., like, I'm always willing to do that. <laughs> yes, which I'm still so grateful for. So, and I was asking you like some very personal questions of like, you know, hey, what's the social norms? Like, what should we mm-hmm. be wearing? What should we not be wearing? And and yeah. you are more than willing to share all of that stuff with us. And like, thank you. Like, I so appreciate that. And having been to like other similar parts of the world, it's just the last thing you want to do is show up as that freaking white, American, ignorant. I mean, all the stereotypes that having traveled quite a bit are sometimes earned, you know, (laughs) of white American women. I mean, it's just true. It's just true. Like when, when you start to travel outside of the U S and you start to see us as others see us, like Mm. you're like, yeah, I can, I get, I get why you feel that way. Like I really do. And I think, oh God, I just keep saying over and over, like everyone leave your bubble, leave where you are, start seeing the world because one, it opens up. And then two, you just see life from a completely different perspective. And I can't wait to add Nepal. I tell everybody that goes, I'm like, Nepal is going to be your new favorite place on the planet. Mark my words. (laughs) Mark my words. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I haven't, so have you been down to India by chance? Only once or like a week for a conference, but not like outside of a hotel or like little city area. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Yeah, it was because I've been there. So I've been all over like Southern India. And I was just curious of what the similarities were. My, my really good friend, Injerji, he's in Pune. And mm-hmm. when I told him that I was going to be in Nepal, and he's like, what? <laughs> you didn't tell me. I was like, I'm sorry, my flights are already booked, but I promise yeah. I'll do a repeat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very different. There's similarities, but also like very different. And like Nepal is like every place, they're dynamic wherever you go across. And Nepal is also very interesting in that the landscape is very hilly and also very diverse. Like you can be in the mountains, you can be in the Himalayas and then take a six hour bus drive and be in the flatlands in the jungle, seeing elephants, tigers, rhinos, leopards, sloth bears, hyenas, like... (sighs) it's wild in a country that's like the size of Tennessee. That is wow. always like, I have never seen, I still like having been going there for seven years. I still haven't seen, like, I feel like a quarter of Nepal because it's just so diverse. I don't know. I'm starting to get really, really excited. <laughs> you know, when you're like working so hard on your day to day and yeah, sometimes it just, it gets lost of like, yeah, what's getting ready to happen. But no, that's so exciting. Yeah, so so let's make a little bit of a of a turn here. I'm sure that COVID has done some pretty whatever it's done to your research and and what you deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I would really love to explore that. Has it delayed your research? What has this past year done to you? Mm. <laughs> For lack of better terms. So I got evacuated. What's the date today? The 12th? A year today from Nepal. Isn't wow. that auspicious? Isn't that crazy? I got a evacuated from Nepal a year today, which was still like a year ago. We still didn't quite know what this thing was. So it has delayed things, but still like my my concern has always been safety. Like the, it can wait. Like the research can always wait. I'm always concerned about field assistance. Like I had funding to be able to send field assistance out to go do the work. The other part of it was like getting the camera traps over there. How are we going to do that? 
So it's in, been delayed in like that sense, but I'm also not going to risk people's lives to take pictures of animals. Um, and we wouldn't be able to do it in the way that we want to do it. So like the community aspect would not have happened during COVID at all um, last fall. And the prime time to camera trap is in the fall winter season. So delays, yes. But well, it took me from, yeah, delays definitely. And a little bit of loss of funding, but like money's money. What are you going to do? And then... I just had to dive into doing a PhD in a global pandemic, which is, do not recommend, <laughs> uh, a wild experience. Again, if you can't tell, I am a social little being. So, and like the, the great parts of academia are being able to like meet new people, learn from new people and interact in that way. Like those are the things I love and not being able to do that. Like fucking sucks. I don't know yeah. how else to say it. It just fucking sucks. Like, and also I'm back in Wisconsin after being in Minnesota for almost 10 years. Like I'm back home and I can't experience the city that I've never lived in, in a way that I would like to. Hmm. So yeah, being isolated and starting a PhD would not recommend, but it is what it is. We're getting the vaccine soon. So brighter days. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. So you're back in Wisconsin. So why did you mm. decide to do a PhD in Wisconsin versus staying in Minnesota? That is a really good question, but also having gone through that curve of learning what academia is, I knew I wanted, again, a very strong advisor that I could learn from and that had my back in the crazy ride that is doing a um, graduate degree in academia. University of Wisconsin-Madison, it's home. It's a good school. I got a funding offer, which is also nice. Uh, <laughs> but I was recommended to my current advisor, Dr. Tim Van Dielen, who is a spatial ecologist. And that is essentially part, like a big part of the work that we're doing and having conversations with, he was recommended by Terry Allendorf, who's a good friend, a mentor. She served on my master's committee and she was also a student of Dave Smith. So he like connected us and she's been working in Nepal for 25 years. So she was like, go talk to Tim. And I talked to Tim and I really liked him and he's had my back. Like he does not have the knowledge base on tigers in Nepal, but it's also this thing of like, like he trusts me and my experience and has had my back. And if there's anything I say to academics that are looking for advisors, the expertise is good. Okay. Like the school is good. Okay. But if they don't have your back, don't do it. Like he cares about me as a human being outside of just somebody who can write papers and that he can put his name on. And I live in like, love that. Thank you, Tim. Like, <laughs> Because academia is a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of politics and it is tough. It's tough to navigate. And I laid everything out of what my mission was and what my goals were getting a PhD. And he's like, love that. Please come. Hmm. <laughs> so that's awesome. I think, thank God you met him. Would yeah. you have stayed in Minnesota or, or no, I don't think so. There was nothing more for me to do because I had already mm. done, taken so many courses. So <laughs> I had like literally nothing else to take. I had done my undergrad and my grad there. I'm like, I had nothing else to take. And it was time to move on to, like professionally too. Like Dave 
I probably will be Dave's last graduate student. He hasn't retired yet, but there was nothing else there for me, unfortunately. But I had, I was looking around and I was shopping and it just felt right. So I went with it. And I Mm. do really like, I do really like it here. Like I love being in Wisconsin. I have yet to get there somehow. So I'll have to change that. Also, one of my uh, former bosses, she's from Wisconsin and she loves to go home too. And and it's so funny because like I'm from Ohio my sister and her brother and like my brother-in-law live in Iowa. So like, I'm never mm. far away. It's just, yeah. Yeah. um, we'll, we'll make a trip up there. It'd be super fun. So I lost my next question. What was it going to, oh, what? <laughs> so what is the timeline for when you are predicting that your PhD will be wrapped up and then what? Uh, Tim, stop listening here. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, press forward button (laughs) by like two minutes. I am hoping like I got my master's done fairly quick. I'm hoping to get in and out in four years. We'll see what happens. I still think it can be done. So yeah, 2024. And then (laughs) figure it out in 2023. (laughs) I don't have to worry about that right now. I mean, I have, again, so I have told you at the beginning of the story of how many things I have imagined I could have done and like wanted to do. I'm still that person. So still just seeing what's up. I mean, also to who the heck knows? Like that's one of the beautiful thing I love about life. Like it's all going to unfold as it should. Yeah. And those things are going to appear when the time is right. Mm. Whatever that, whatever that is. I mean, like you said, you're scrappy, you're smart, you're intelligent. You're going to figure it out. And four years is a long freaking time. I mean, that, that really is a long time to, yeah. how much can change and, from here and there? And that's the thing is like every six months changes. So like I would, could, I could confidently say at the beginning of my master's, the things that I thought I was going to do at the end of that didn't happen. The things that I wanted to do at the beginning of my PhD, which were last, last fall have changed. So could I see myself teaching and being a professor? Yes, but I also am interested in policy, again, still working internationally and being able to be in charge of big pots of money and saying we should be doing community conservation. I also like the, yeah, the, um, what's the word? Like consultant aspect of that. We'll see what happens. Yeah. The The field also changes with every passing day. So (laughs) for real though, like 2019, I was like, I'm going to be a professor. And then 2020, it's like, nobody's getting hired. It's a very, it's like a rarity to be able to get these types of positions. And I'm like, okay, well then we've got to keep our, we have to have plan B, C, D through Z. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, uh, like for example, um, who I used to work with quite a bit, my number, my fifth guest on, on the podcast, uh, Court Whalen, I worked with him mm-hmm. every single day and he was also a PhD and he was the conservation director at my travel company that we worked at, the conservation mm-hmm. travel company. And then I've connected a lot with Charles Von Ries, who is like a research scientist and he's soon transferring to Georgia, but he also has like his PhD. So it seems like mm. there are so many different outlets after you get your PhD on exactly what you want to do. And also a part of me is kind of kind of selfish because a part of me has thought about maybe when my student loans are paid off, maybe getting a PhD, but it would only yeah. just because I would want to learn. But yeah, who knows what would come out of that. But it's like, I just absolutely love talking to people who are in or have gotten their PhD yeah. to see 
What was your path? It does. It does change your goals. Like, I don't know how you felt. I feel like this is a common feeling of many people that go into this field is they're like, I just want to be in the fields. Like, I just want to be out there and doing it. And unfortunately, like I can totally say I did my master's because I was interested in the work and I knew that it was going to make me competitive for a field job. But by the end of that master's, you're beyond that. Like you are beyond being a technician. And now at the end of a PhD, like my whole drive is like, I just want to be out there, right? Because that's the thing that connects us and why we're so passionate about the field. But at the end of the PhD, like, what am I going to go be a field technician? No, you're out experiencing yourself. So like people need to think about that too, because I can also see this trend where people are like, should I go do a graduate degree? What is your end goal? Because it's like, I want to, this is a competitive field. Let's not ignore that. This is a very competitive field. But if your end goal is like, I just want to be out there and be a field technician, you just have to keep knocking on doors. I promise you, you do not need to keep getting degrees. Yeah. Like what is your motivation for continuing on? Yes. You need like, think about your end goal. So <laughs> that is my, a really good that's reflection. my words of wisdom. No, that that's really great. And that's also part of the reason why I, I haven't continue on. Like, you know, like I have a master's and, and everything and there, there isn't enough reason to, other than the fact that just like you said, like, I just want to have a reason to study this every single day. Yeah, <laughs> And that's also part of the reason why the podcast exists is like, I just I want <laughs> to do this all the time, every single day on my mm. terms mm. and my way. And having been in the field in the conservation field for so long and having done a lot and have it also a lot taken away, a lot taken away. The only reason why I would want a PhD is to just have the excuse to study something I love so much and just keep learning. So, so that's something I need to personally explore a lot more, but again, I have way too much student loan debt right now to even think about it. So maybe once that gets cleaned up a little bit more, that's very real. real. Yeah. Once that gets cleaned up a little bit more, we'll, we'll think about that, but yeah. So tell me about your craziest, like in the field research story. Oh my God. Marona (laughs) Mia. (laughs) You can even say more than one if there's more than one, but I would love to hear this. I mean, there's quite a few. It's always crazy. Cause again, you're like, this is the other thing I love about being in nature is you truly do. You are part of that system and you are not top dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Especially in a place in a landscape like Nepal, where you have mega herbivores like rhinos, and there are two rhinos to every square mile of Chitwan National Park. You are truly part of that system. So my crazy stories are always like, I love rhinos. They are probably, they're probably, they are definitely like my second favorite animal. They're like our living, they're not our living dinosaurs, but they look like living dinosaurs. Uh, Especially the ones in Nepal. (laughs) I love a greater one horn rhinoceros. I've been chased a few times by rhinos, which is, I've told this story before on on another podcast, but being able to have those, this is another tip. So having those skills of being able to know what to do in an emergency and not ask questions, you need to be self-reliant because in the instance that we were, that my field crew was chased by rhinos, nobody said a word. Everyone just ran. It was like these massive 
animals were running at us. And then I turned into Wonder Woman and was going 30 miles an hour through thick <laughs> jungle. I have been far too close to a wild elephant. That's something I also want to make clear is that elephants are dangerous. <laughs> they can be very dangerous. They get portrayed as like these sweet, gentle creatures. And I don't want to diminish that. They can be. But running into a male elephant in musk is, I would say, the most terrifying experience of my life. There was a night we were, when I was staying in Nepal, there's little like tea shops. So like you get to know people, you hang out at the local spot and it was getting late and there are working elephants in Nepal and specifically in this area. And so I walk out the door and I see an elephant. Now it's late. 11 o'clock. So there's not going to be like working elephants out. And I feel someone grab the back of my shirt and pull me back in. And this was the giant male elephant that routinely has killed people that was just walking down the street. And so you stay very quiet. And I probably peed my pants a little bit, but staying very quiet and then to just see the trunk move. They're highly intelligent and they're amazing animals. Like, they are incredible animals to be in the presence of, um, but to understand the power of that, and especially a big, bulky bull elephant, that's probably the closest I felt to death. That was pretty wild. And so we just waited and he was like sniffing around and then moved on. Ronaldo, you scare the shit out of me. That's his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just gives me the... Like, when, as you're telling this story, I've literally felt like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up from just... It's a wild thing to, like, think about being used to elephants. But when I'm in, when I'm in Soraha, which is where the base is, outside of Chitwan, or in Chitwan, actually, you see elephants a lot. So I was, like, a little too comfortable. And I'm like, then I had to re remember myself and be like, it's 11 o'clock at night. Nobody's out walking there. Like, nobody's out with a working elephant. And then to feel someone go... <laughs> <laughs> like come here right now because get back in and shut up <laughs> um seeing tigers is a spiritual experience also like yeah it's just wild like the last day of my master's field work it was a it was strange because you're in the southernmost part of Nepal is Chitwan in the Tarai, which means the lowlands. So we're talking like way beyond the foothills. And you don't normally see the mountains because there's so much fog or whatever. And that day we could see the Himalayas. So I was like, oh, this is going to be a lucky day. Like how crazy. And so we had done our last interviews and we are on motorcycles leaving. We are right before we enter the national park. From the study Eric's remember Madi is you have to drive through the national park. So I'm rounding a corner. Sun is setting. Dust is kicked up and a tiger crosses in front of us. And I am like screaming on the back of my assistant's motorcycle. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And he's like, Darlagta, Darlagta, are you scared? Are you scared? And I'm like, no, Kusilagta, Kusilagta, I'm so happy. <laughs> and he pulls over and we watch this animal just like disappear. And it truly was like, it seemed like a mirage because it was like the light was hitting it. It was very, it was very, very tiger style. I will say like dramatic lighting was perfect. A true 
apex predator style. And it was just like, that was the end of our field work. And like, <laughs> out of body. That was experience. like a mic drop. That was like a mother yes. nature mic drop on your research. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, what a crazy, it is truly um, like anyone who has seen these animals in the wild. It is truly a spiritual experience. I have it once. Really an and out I, of body experience. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if you feel this way. Like if you've been to a concert and you've like seen a celebrity and you're like thinking about it out, you're like, did I really see that? Like, did I, was I really? Oh, I, no, I agree. Like someone took a picture <laughs> of me as I was watching them and I was in India. Hmm. And I just like, if I just close my eyes, I can still see like the moment mm. we saw him. He's a young adolescent male at this uh, watering hole and he had just eaten. So he didn't give two shits that we were there. <laughs> and yeah, he was just like, Meh, you know, like he was just fine. He was cool. And we were with him for 45 minutes. And mm, I was that. like, I was like the tears we're like right here. Yeah. And I was like getting ready to lose my mind. Like every single emotion. It's the emotions that you don't expect. I didn't expect the emotions that like that ran through me when I yeah. saw him for the first time. And, <gasps> and then they do shit like that. Like these animals do shit like that where they're like, you better keep working to protect me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, and then. Ever since then, still, I mean, well, I was super excited for the possibility of seeing it. And then like when it happened, I'm just like, you validated everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was towards the end of my master's as well. It was like, you validated everything that I'm trying to do, that I'm starting to do. Like, thank you for just being here and giving me you because mm, ah. <laughs> like, just, I love ah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah. Mm. Okay. Let me get over myself for a second. Anyways, so so I want to take a little bit of a turn as well here again. Tell me about some of your, it could be one or it could be multiple, of some of your biggest struggles in your journey so far and how you've overcome them or if you're still working on overcoming them. Hmm. The first thing that comes to mind is again the trope that a wildlife biologist looks a particular way and i want to be very clear that i understand that i am a white woman and white women have listen white women have benefited the most from affirmative action no one has ever questioned my presence in academia do i get constant sexism in wildlife biology in general yes I have gotten a thicker skin in that and being able to add it, like express myself. Another thing, this is also another skill set that is pretty needed is conflict management. So being Mm -hmm. able to Mm -hmm. express myself and say things like that makes me uncomfortable. What you just said, or like what you just did. That is a tool that I give a lot of women because it doesn't, it's not like you make me uncomfortable. It's that makes me uncomfortable. So they have to like think and sit with that. I've been harassed in every single job I've ever had, which is like, I don't know how to look back on it, except just like roll my eyes and be like, it's bullshit. And thinking back to the research of like our landscape and our protected areas here in the U.S. are effectively being shaped by white men. 
because that's what we see reflected in the fields and especially in higher up positions. And it's irritating and it's unacceptable. Other struggles, including imposter syndrome, which I think most people identify with. Do I belong here? Am I smart enough? All things that I've been talking about through this podcast of like things that I definitely dealt with and continue to deal with ADHD, all these other things like, do I fit in this space? Because I will say that academia will constantly try to mold you into that trope. And at this point, I am somebody that's like, fuck that mold. And I will fight for everybody to just be like, the world would be a better place if people could just be themselves authentically. And I do not look like a wildlife biologist. I am multidimensional. I'm not going to apologize for that. And nobody should have to apologize for that. Like RuPaul famously says, we're all born naked and the rest is just drag. We are (laughs) multifaceted human beings. We do not have to just be into wildlife, like outdoor, not wearing makeup, um, wearing field clothes and sweatshirts all the time. And it's irritating, like fighting those tropes and allowing people to just be themselves and making those environments safe for people to be themselves. So ways to get over that is honestly just time, time and pushing through and getting a thick skin and also having a good solid network, like having those people that you can rely on to just vent. I still have those people through this pandemic. I've created a wider network of people. Like I have multiple group chats where it's just like, vent, let's chat, let's catch, get someone to gas you up. I love gassing my friends up. So if you need someone to tell you that you're going to be the, like, you're doing great, sweetie. At me on Twitter. I, will, I am that person. <laughs> Well, it's beautiful. Everybody needs a friend like that because we can all use that. I have been in that place where I'm like, I am like, not that great. I'm not doing well. How can I get past this? Everyone needs that. Everyone needs that support and be able to like, also understand that you cannot fully understand what everybody's going through. Like we are multidimensional human beings and should be treated as such. Yes, that was Beautiful. Yeah. Especially like getting over the imposter syndrome and stuff. Mm. And, and I mean, I can't, I can't relate more to that. Like even just starting this podcast, it took me months. We'll just say that it took me a long time from an idea inception to actually launching the damn thing. It was very, I'm so glad you did. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) It's and, and, and just the reward that has come from it has validated it over and Mm. over and over that all the work, that all the stress, that all the self-doubt was more than worth it. Like it's like Mm. over and over. I'm talking to you right now. I wouldn't know you if it wasn't because of this. Yes, I knew Dave, but if who knows if all of the conversations would have happened properly for this to actually happen. And then you and me going beyond our conversation of you just like giving us tips on what to do. We mm. wouldn't be having this right now. Like you're an amazing human being and I'm so <laughs> grateful to know you. And I can't wait till we have drinks in person. I like, love that. Already, <laughs> <laughs> all 
already. I'm just like, okay, so do I need to go to Wisconsin or when is she going to come to Denver? Um, I have a <laughs> amazing blow up bed that I just purchased. <laughs> and I am the hostess with Mostis. I will cook for you, make you a great cocktail. Oh, <laughs> I need, I need this pancetta to be over because I love hosting people. Mm, I'm the exact same way. Come I'm the to exact me, same honey. way. I will love, I would. I'm sure flights from Denver to Milwaukee cannot be expensive. No, there's no way they're expensive. We'll figure it out. I'll come get you. I'll come get you. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. That's great. (laughs) I'm already just like thinking about like, oh, oh, let's make this happen. It'd be so much fun. Nepal first. Yes. Nepal first. Nepal first. But yeah, when we get back, I don't freaking know. There's nothing else on my calendar. So (laughs) let's figure it out. Come stay. Gorgeous. That's gorgeous. So I know that you you have a nonprofit. Let's let's get into this. Tell me about it. What is it? How with everything you're doing, I know. You also started a nonprofit. So like tell me what, what where did the idea come from? Well, how did you start it? Who did you start it with? Like, yeah, everything. I want to hear everything. The idea was in a bar in Kathmandu, literally written on a napkin. Just awesome. being frustrated. Like <laughs> I hate to be like, like, oh, that sounds like a movie, but that's actually how it happened was we were a little bit drunk, which is great because we're, this is all full circle. Now we're talking about it. Yes. <laughs> Just frustrated with science communication or lack thereof. So my best friend and I were like, okay, this is all great. We've done this amazing work. We can continue to do this amazing work, but how do we connect the wider, like general public with science? And there is science communication. There's great science communicators. That field has grown exponentially in the last five to 10 years. So it is Project Conservation, which you can find us at projectconservationfund.org, is focused on spreading awareness and promoting and empowering existing conservation activities. So we have projects in Thailand and Nepal with like local researchers that are doing that work, just being able to expose the amazing work that they're doing. Because that's another thing is we see a lot of faces that look like mine promoting this work. And there are a thousand faces that don't look like me that are doing amazing work just like me. So being able to promote them and connect it through media publications, whether it is a documentary, a short and social media. So that's what we do and raise funds for them to continue to be able to do amazing work. Mm. So how did you get started with it? Like how, what was the process for, so you had this great idea, but then Mm. like an idea to inception, like those are two very different things. So how did it come to be? And then like, how is it still going today? Yeah. So my best friend, Emily Earhart is also a like kick-ass conservationist and she, her background is in wildlife film. And she was also in Nepal with me when we were in undergrad. So she does filming and understands like media sides of cutting and editing everything and was very passionate about the same thing. Like great. Only scientists are reading scientific journals. That isn't going to change anything. Everything's going to go to shit. Classic conservation pessimism. Her, the process is you can get it done in your state. There is it. I don't want to say it's like super easy, but it's kind of easy. Like we figured it out at what, like 22, 23. It also helps that her dad is a lawyer. So Oh, that's helpful. (laughs) That is helpful. So we filled out the paperwork and got approved and we've done, we fund projects in Thailand and Nepal. So that's awesome. Does that feel like so many people 
you know, it's just, it's just inspiring to see that like you're doing all this research stuff, but then you you've taken it even bigger to have a greater mm. impact by co-founding a nonprofit. Like that's, that's incredible. Is it, yeah, when, you. I, when, when you said that, when you said that to me and I was really starting to look into it, I'm like, girl, so you've, I'm doing too much. Done, you're, you're doing so much. I was like, this is unbelievably, like, this is unbelievable. This is amazing. And so, yeah, I still have it pulled up here. And I was just like, wow, I gotta, gotta yeah. make sure you talk about this. The other thing I will add is every single penny that is donated goes into our conservation programs. So like uh, Emily and I have obviously other gigs and we don't take a kickback from that. And that was something that we, that was also something that we saw lacking. Not that people don't deserve to be paid, but that there are nonprofits that take huge, and I mean, absolutely enormous cuts of funding that is being donated to pay salaries instead of putting that right into the work. So everything that comes through our website is going straight to the ground. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, I'll make sure that the, the link to this is in the show notes for sure. Thank you. I want people to see your amazing work. It's awesome. It's beautiful. You're awesome. So, nice. so if anybody wants to connect with you or yes. your work or find you, what is the best way for somebody to do that? They can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Samantha. I am. <laughs> that's that's, that's <laughs> the funnest name. I am oh, Sam was taken and I am Samantha was taken. <laughs> so I reversed it. Um, Samantha, I am. You can find me in both those places. You can also send me an email at S. L Helly, H E L L E at W I S C dot EDU. I'm open if you want like mentoring or mm -hmm. things like that. Like I love doing that. Shoot me an email. That's awesome. So everyone, you heard her. Sam's open and willing. So just let her know if you have any questions about anything. As you can tell, she's absolutely amazing, doing amazing work in Nepal and will continue to do amazing work in Nepal. So thank you so much, Sam. This has been Thanks for having me. This so was much so fun. much fun. <laughs> The Nepal Coexisting with Giants series was recorded in March 2021 with me, your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, and fellow conservationist, Courtney Gonzalez. All of the stories shared are from the guest viewpoints and their first-hand experiences. A special thanks to the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund for helping to support this series through their Conservation Travel Fund and connecting us with their amazing Nepalese partners. To hear more about KACF and their founder, check out episode two with Dave Johnson. If you're liking the show, hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a future episode. If you're feeling super squirrely, share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. Sharing is the best way to help the show grow and I couldn't do it without you. Until next time, my friends, together we will rewild the planet.